0: This is Tending Bar. I'm Todd Harris. Thanks for listening. This is an audio only version of our podcast. To see the full video interview, check out tendingbar.org. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Tending Barcast. Hi, I'm Todd Harris, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Tending Bar. Today I have a really special guest to share with you, my my friend and colleague Allison Bost. Allison is the Deputy General Counsel of Womble Bond Dickinson, which, as you know, is a very very large law firm in the United States and the UK. And as that, she has a unique kind of practice that I want to want to talk about with you. That is that Allison is a lawyer to lawyers. And there are a lot of issues that lawyers deal with in self-regulation and in their own ethical uh, reflections that I'm not sure the general public is always aware about. We're going to talk about that somewhat today. But beyond talking about her practice internal to the firm, we're going to talk about some of the initiatives that she and I have worked on together that are things we care about deeply. Things that I'm going to talk about a lot on this Tending Bar podcast over time. And those are how lawyers can work to address issues of bias in society, bias in the workplace in particular. And we're gonna talk to you about some of the initiatives that we've undertaken within our own organization, as have many other law firms, uh, to try to make ourselves better educated, more aware around uh, implicit biases. And that'll be part of our conversation today. So I wanna welcome Allison to join us, and uh, if you will, Allison, welcome to Tending Bar. You're on air.
1: Thanks, Todd. Nice to see you, and thanks for having me.
0: Well, I'm glad you joined us today, because I think you have a very special kind of practice, and that is because you have to put up with people like me and a lot, of, and several hundred other attorneys in our law firm. Um, But before we talk about your practice as it exists today, uh, I want to ask you the question I've been asking all of our guests uh, because our students, uh, like the students at Georgetown Law, are always interested in knowing how it is that our guests came to the law. Why is it that you came to study law and to practice law? Why did you want to be a lawyer?
1: I love that question, Todd, and I'm glad you're asking everyone because I'd like to hear these anecdotes from other lawyers as well. so I'll tell you my story. Um, I'm actually a lawyer because of a mentor. and one of the things I think is so important in any profession, but particularly the legal profession is your mentors and your sponsors. So dating all the way back to my college days, I had a professor. Um, and I was a French major, which may not be the most obvious path to the law, but I had a very just beloved dear friend professor who, who really became a mentor to me. And she suggested that um, I consider going to law school because I had not thought of that when I was in college. And I was taking some time between college and law school to work and to you know, start to build my professional life. And based on her suggestion, I started exploring the law and becoming very interested in the intellectual way of analyzing the law, of analyzing statutes, of analyzing case law, particularly in the area of constitutional law and laws around employment issues, including anti-discrimination types of laws.
0: Like like many of us, you came to, to study the law because of those sort of broad interests, and, and those are some specific interests. How is it that you came to be the general counsel or deputy general counsel for us at Womble? How, how did you come into that practice?
1: So that's part of the surprising evolution of a legal career. Candidly, when I started practicing law, I had no idea that this was a job that anyone could ever have. <laughs> So I was trained as a litigator. Um, I just told you I, I, I became a lawyer in order to work on certain types of law. So I was trained as a litigator in a more general litigation practice in our firm. But something I was doing on a parallel track as part of my service to the firm and to the legal profession is I served on our ethics committee. So we had a committee of people across the firm who were tapped by the leadership of the firm to be the body that people would come to if they had an ethical dilemma. So after a few years of doing that, um, unexpectedly out of the blue, Uh, the partner at our firm who who was serving as the chair of the professionalism committee at the time and the hiring partner for the firm came to me and asked if I would be open to some opportunities and offered this role working with our then general counsel because as the firm grew, the job became more than one person could do. So I sort of got taken under his wing to learn how to be a lawyer for lawyers and become more specialized in legal ethics and legal risk management including things like conflicts of interest and how to resolve them when they're, when they're presented. All good things to serve the firm and our clients. And so I jumped at the opportunity.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, so uh, different, different law firms approach uh, these issues in different ways. Not all law firms have what they would call an ethics committee. A lot of law firms have a risk management committee or risk mitigation um, kind of function. Uh, which is a little bit narrower. I'm not sure the general public is aware that all lawyers, I, I believe it's in every state, but it's in most states. not not only do they have to pass the multi-state bar exam, but have to pass an exam that is that is based on the model rules of professional uh, behavior for for uh, lawyers. and um, and so some law firms have a committee that is is really just tracking those rules and making sure there's compliance. So it's really a compliance committee. And those rules are primarily about conflicts of interest. We come back in that. But an ethics committee is a bit broader concept, isn't it? It's not just about compliance with um, compulsory rules, but about doing, what, doing the right thing. And I think, um, I think it might surprise folks sometimes how carefully lawyers attend, especially in large firms, to more than just staying out of trouble, but in trying to make sure that their practice is, is ethical. Um, in in a broader sense. So I'd like, if you can, in your role, and as you said, our our firm is big enough that we've had a multi-person general counsel's office for a long time, but what are the kinds of questions that come across your desk as a lawyer to lawyers from day to day? What's what's your day like as that kind of lawyer? So the questions I get most
1: often have to do with conflicts of interest. And as you said, it is an effort by our lawyers that work at this law firm to make sure we are serving clients appropriately. So for example, we don't want to take on a matter in one part of our firm that's against a client being represented in a different part of our firm. And when I say a matter against a client... I don't mean that we are hostile or hate them or trying to destroy them. I just may mean that we are trying to do a real estate transaction and they want to sell something we have another client that wants to buy and we need to work out how to do that appropriately if the clients are agreeable to such an approach. If the clients are not agreeable to such an approach, then we would back off.
0: So, the, And the basic concept for folks who don't think about conflicts of interest generally is that if if um, the firm has some sort of benefit from representing client A and now it wants to represent client B and those two are in some transaction together or some litigation together. Uh, in representing one or the other, we might pull our punches is the concern. That we might not zealously represent the interests of one client or or either of the clients because we don't want to lose the relationship with the other one. Um, and so we're Um, where our own relationship starts to be, we start to think with one of the clients, we start to think about in giving advice, what's good for us as opposed to what's good for them. And that's the conflict. Now, some people say that lawyers have built in conflicts all the time. You know, for example, we get paid by the hour. And, um, <laughs> and so some will say we have an incentive to bill more hours as a result, but most of us have, uh, a broad enough perspective to understand that if you're, if you're not fair to a client on things like, uh, the amount of time spent on something, you won't have that client for long. So our interests are aligned on those kinds of issues. But the basic notion is representing two clients opposite one another, even if it's not the same attorneys involved, um, could cause us to be less than zealous as we're supposed to be. Is that a fair description?
1: That's a fair description. Um, in conflicts world, we would call that a material limitation. That's the language that the conflict rules. If, if a lawyer or a firm would have a material limitation on that lawyer or firm's ability to represent a client competently and diligently is the language of the rules, then that's where we have to go have a conversation with the client. We have to disclose the issue to the client and the client gets to ask us questions and obtain whatever information the client needs to analyze the situation. And then the client gets to decide if the client wants to proceed with us and consent to the situation or not.
0: Yeah. And most firms and our firm usually draw a line that says we would never represent one client in suing another client that the litigation is usually where that line is, is drawn pretty firmly. Um, But Uh, pretty commonly, you might represent a large company over in one office and another large company in another office, and they're just doing some routine transaction that they just need the paperwork for, that sort of thing. So those waivers are not uncommon in those cases. But even then, it's not the same lawyers who would be representing both. That would be atypical, at least, uh, fair statement.
1: That is fair. All of that is fair. And of course, subject to lots of detailed nuances, Exceptions to certain rules, particularly if the clients were to consent to a specific arrangement. But generally speaking, yes, that's that's how we would want to manage our conflicts and and handle our representation of clients. Why,
0: why don't we have a national standard around those sorts of things? By having, if you have a, a national firm or a transnational firm, as we do. And there are rules all over the place. Doesn't that seem to mean that we have to comply with the most restrictive rules? Um, And so any particular jurisdiction can really um, govern the rest?
1: That is exactly right. Um, So I I will just say on on the point of why don't we have a national standard, I think the answer to that is a bit intertwined with the way lawyers are licensed to practice. Practice law. Lawyers are not licensed to practice nationally. Lawyers are licensed to practice by the individual states or districts or commonwealths. So, for example, I have a law license to practice North Carolina law and District of Columbia law, but I had to get one in each place. And I do not have a license to practice nationally because no one does. That's not a thing that exists. So right. if people need a license in each jurisdiction, each jurisdiction has rules, as you know, with your Virginia law license, and you may have others as well. Um, so there's no national standard. We do have the American Bar Association, which is a voluntary association of lawyers, which, as you, as you said earlier, puts out recommended, they're called model rules of professional conduct. And they're very persuasive, but they do not govern any of us or any of our law licenses. So with a large law firm like ours, we're in states, various states in the U.S., and we would have to comply with the most restrictive rules to make sure all of our lawyers are in compliance. So taking the example that I get asked about a lot, which is attorney advertising, what can we put out in the public? What can we put on our website? What can we send out to clients and friends of the firm? What can it say? Does it have to have a disclaimer? How can it look? Each state where we have offices has very different attorney advertising rules. Texas, for example, where we have our most recent office addition in Houston, has some very specific rules about submitting materials to the bar for approval first, before they're these days typically posted somewhere on the Internet. South Carolina, where we also have a large presence, has some very specific, nuanced, detailed attorney advertising rules going as specifically as addressing words lawyers can and cannot use. And so for our firm, we spend a lot of time making sure that our marketing efforts and our communications efforts to keep our clients informed of things is compliant, even with some of these really tricky, very detailed rules.
0: Right well um it it's great to hear uh, about any any firm taking so seriously its professional responsibilities, but more than that thinking about not just compliance, not just the floor as you described, but uh, more more aspirational um standards to achieve and that that's really the core of why uh, I wanted to have you as part of this conversation today not just about the interesting part of your practice that is advising other lawyers uh, around their around their ethical obligations but because you and I have shared a particular interest we have both been part of um, our firm's diversity and inclusion committee for a number of years now and um, we both both care deeply about some of those issues um, but in particular you have you have done a, a lot of work to help our firm, um get education to staff and attorneys about the issue of implicit bias and that's that's really where I wanted to turn our conversation today um so if you will I'd like I'd like just generally if you can help our viewers understand how how it is that we interpret that that idea of implicit bias what what does that mean to you sure
1: let me give a little context for this, Todd. And, and as you said, you and I are both on our Diversity and Inclusion Committee, which I'll probably refer to as our DNI Committee from time to time. And I like that title because it emphasizes equally two very, very important concepts: diversity as well as inclusion. So we believe in our firm very strongly in our core values of integrity, devotion to clients, and respect for the individual, which marries very well with all DNI initiatives. So in an effort to make our firm into the best possible firm to serve our clients with this diverse group of lawyers and an inclusive team coming up with great ideas and great solutions, we've engaged in a training initiative over the past few years. And I have had the honor of leading that training initiative. And it is a training initiative on unconscious or implicit bias. And we have been working with some outside consultants who have become quite good friends uh, as we have gone and presented programs office to office. And what we're trying to spotlight and educate about is this concept of unconscious or implicit bias and how it manifests and what we can do to begin to recognize it and begin in appropriate situations to counter it. Because implicit or unconscious bias is something we all have. It is not necessarily bad. Speaking for myself and some of the things that I know my defaults are, it is occasionally bad and I need to be aware of it and, and interrupt it. So the concept of unconscious or implicit bias is based in the field of cognitive neuroscience, cognitive psychology, and social psychology. So it's an amalgamation of these three, what I find to be really interesting fields of study, about how our brains work and it's really about the mental processes in our brains that influence our interactions with others in a way that's sort of automatic or default or unconscious as the name itself implies it's really about mental shortcuts that our brains make without even without any intentional awareness, we may not even notice or realize. And these are shortcuts based on, like you said, social norms, what we see in the media, what we hear about, you know, what the, what the music is we listen to, any social media that we follow, often occasionally based on stereotypes. And um, one thing I like to remind myself is something that my friend, who is our consultant, has said from time to time, which is, We all have these. Plenty of them help us to do things faster, more efficiently, move forward in our jobs, in our personal lives. But some need to be examined more carefully and and potentially interrupted. And those are the ones um, that I can describe this way. And 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 I'm borrowing a description from our consultants, so I certainly want to give them credit. But if you can think about the concept of acid rain, Anybody who was outside when acid rain fell, we were just standing there, it fell on us. And that's kind of, that's the concept of all the isms we have in the world today. Racism, sexism, et cetera. Those were not things your generation, my generation, even our parents' generation invented. Those things have existed and we've existed in the world with them. So many of those things have landed on us, much like the rain but we need, in my view, to educate ourselves about what that means and how we interact with others because it can lead to problematic things.
0: So if I, I can example, pause you for a you second, think about, there's a distinction to be made. I want to make sure that we that we make this. Um, there, there's, there are clearly expressions of conscious biases that we would describe as the various isms, like consciously having a belief about one's worth or value, attributable to their race for example or attributable to their gender or to their sexual orientation or those sorts of things and those those things sometimes we describe as hate sometimes we don't describe them that way but that's we're not talking about that exactly we're talking about something that is a process of our brains that's very normal and that is is present even in those persons who very consciously oppose discrimination. So a person who is not just non-racist consciously but even actively anti-racist still harbors, still possesses unconscious biases on the axis of race because they have absorbed the background noise of just living in society. All the media images that associate uh, let's say, blackness with a particular quality, or femaleness with a particular quality, and we have a, we have accumulated those in, in a database, as it were, that says this is these are the associations that society has communicated. And as you described it as a mental shortcut, that when we are not consciously um, m- and carefully making our decisions, will sometimes make s- mental shortcuts take shortcuts that rely upon those associations that were planted even if one is consciously opposed to those biases a great piece of evidence of this is that uh, the research shows over and over that persons who are in the discriminated target group discriminated against target group harbor the same biases about their own target group so women will have unconscious biases about women because that's part of the societal background noise that they've accumulated. I, I wanted to mention one piece of uh, web content. There we go. Um, I'm showing it to you, and I'll I'll roll this over our conversation. But we have we have directed a lot of people, and I'll put a link to this uh, on the on uh, tending bar to Harvard's Project Implicit. Um, Could you just tell us just a little bit about Project Implicit?
1: Sure. Um, And, and Todd, that's an excellent tool that we have used in our training initiative on implicit or unconscious bias. Uh, This is a a free uh, website that anyone can access um, and it's put together by Harvard University. So, of course, it's very high quality. Um, There are links on this website to allow you to take certain tests and you're just doing it from your computer. So you're typing on your uh, keyboard and there are different, um, categories that, that you can test yourself on. And it's not like you fail or pass. It's just, you see what you, what, what your defaults are and you can test yourself, say on the race axis or on the gender axis or sexual orientation access or, any number of other other things. I think you mentioned weight earlier when we were talking. Um, and I have certainly taken myself some of these Harvard, Harvard implicit association tests. And I find them very challenging because they make me think about what my brain is doing <laughs> without my notice. And so I'll just give an example of taking the race implicit association test, which I have done personally. Um, The test asks you to type certain keys on your computer when you see a certain word or depiction. And then it moves on to ask you to associate those either positive positive or generally negative terms with race. So the first part of the test asked me to type a key and associate a positive word or characteristic with a white person's face. And then the next part of the test asked me to associate a negative picture or word with a black person's face. And then it switched, associated a negative word with a white person's face and associate a positive word with a black person's face. And it literally is just timing like how fast you do that, because that's the measure of what's most implicit, what your mental shortcut default is. And that will really, for me, it really made me think about how I was raised, what I learned, what I read, what I think about, what I listen to, what I watch, who I talk to, because all of that forms part of who we are. It's just an educational experience, it doesn't make a person good or bad, it just teaches you about things that have formed your consciousness over the course of your life. And we all have different experiences. And you can't tell by looking at your face or my face or anyone's face what your experiences are. So this is not meant to say any group is going to have certain reactions. It's individualized. But it's a real way to learn about yourself and start to think about some of these concepts in a way that's just, you know, the privacy of your own office typing in your computer. And you can examine some of your own views.
0: Well, so let's bring this to practical application. So... It, it could mean that as we look at hiring in an organization, and if we have a slate of candidates that involve both men and women, let's say, for a leadership position, that interviewers may have you know, in their database, implied associations of maleness or femaleness with the, with the kind of leadership position being sought, and, and they may, unawares to themselves, May uh, be quicker using their mental shortcuts to hire the male than the female, or depending on the job, to hire the female than the male. But um, but not not entirely because they are weighing all the factors, because they may be including some of those those unconscious um, motivations and, and pressures. So It's important to point out that this is this is universal. All human beings have this, and it's it is. Not in and of itself an ethical failing that someone's doing something that the brain is occurring. However, because we're aware that this isn't going on, not to address it, you and I would argue would would be an ethical shortfall. We we should be addressing this. Now, I've had people I've had this conversation a thousand times. I'm sure you have, where people have said to me, "If it's not an ethical failing, you know, we're not we're not consciously discriminating against a candidate. Let's say." Um, what's wrong with this? Where is there something wrong? And you said it earlier um, that we believe that a diverse team will provide better services to our clients. Sometimes I've had to, and I I don't want to rely on this argument, but sometimes I've had to try to sway colleagues or or friends that they, they should be interested in this because the data do now show That organizations that operate and manage with a diverse team are are in fact more profitable. And uh, and so, if for no other reason to bring people on board to this conversation, um, you know I feel it's important for people to realize that we will operate better, and um, if we are incorporating diverse. Life experiences, diverse points of view into into every bit of our management operation that we can. So, um, this brings us around to a, a, an initiative that you've also uh, led the charge for in our firm. One of the themes in the Tending Bar conversations has been to explore sort of the underlying motivations of lawyers, as and in, in you know what their higher callings are. We've been talking about that here. Uh, and realizing that if if those are the things that motivate us to be lawyers, when we realize that the law can't fully accomplish those things, we still care about accomplishing those things. So you and I care about diverse workplaces. And when it comes to implicit bias, we know that the law can't can't eliminate that. It's It's a feature of the brain. So how do we combat those implicit biases, more than just the education, and and for that I want us to talk about something called the Mansfield rule. Can you tell us what that is and how we've been involved?
1: Certainly. Yeah, on on the unconscious or implicit bias, I think the education part is first, right? That's what you got to under understand it or at least know about it before you can do anything about it. But one tangible step that our firm has taken, and I'm very proud of the way that our firm has showed up and participated in this initiative is something called the Mansfield project. So the Mansfield project has been, yeah, thank you. um, The Mansfield Mansfield Rule and the Mansfield Project is um, something put on by a company called Diversity Lab and was created through a um, program with Stanford University. And this was the idea basically to model the law firm uh, legal hiring practice on the Rooney Rule from the NFL – and for football fans, you may recall that um, the Rooney Rule requires teams to interview at least one diverse candidate for head coaching positions. And it's since, it's since been extended much more broadly, but that's how it started. And so the Mansfield Rule is modeled on the Rooney Rule. Uh, Arabella Mansfield was the first woman licensed to practice law in the United States, so that's why we get the Mansfield name in the rule. And basically, what the Mans, what firms participating in the Mansfield project agree to do is, we agree that we will. Um, do a number of things to boost diversity and inclusion in the legal profession, specifically including considering diverse slates of candidates for certain important positions in a law firm. So for promotion to equity partner, for any leadership positions, such as chair of the firm, practice group leader, office managing partner, team leader, things like that, lateral hiring, So when we're hiring lawyers from outside the firm to come into our pipeline, whether it's at an equity partner level or any level that's considered senior, the definition is fourth year lawyer and above. Um, And there's some other things that, that we agree to do as a Mansfield firm. We agree that we will aim to consider a diverse candidate pool for all of our pitch teams that go out to pitch to clients to say, hey, we're available and can help you with your legal needs. And for the Mansfield firms, the goal is to consider a candidate pool that is at least 30 percent, I'm going to call it diverse, or Mansfield qualified lawyers. And what Mansfield qualified lawyers in today's iteration means, women, attorneys of color, LGBTQ plus attorneys, and attorneys with disabilities. And so the Mansfield rule has been evolving for about four years now, and we've been involved for three of those. We just couldn't get in the first year we tried. Um, And so we have really found success with the Mansfield rule. We're very proud that we were certified. We're Mansfield certified. So Diversity Lab has reviewed our stats, and we met those threshold goals, and we are very proud of that. But the idea is we can't reach – Your and my goal of having a diverse law firm without considering a diverse pool of candidates for our open positions. So you have got to have that in the pipeline in order to make the progress that we want to make. And it also prompts exactly what you and I are doing, Todd. Being a Mansfield firm prompts these intentional conversations and intentional thinking around diversity and inclusion and what it means to have a diverse candidate pool for these positions, for our pitches to our clients, so that we can intentionally move our firm forward in becoming a more diverse and inclusive firm that we all want to work at. And that we want to have in order to serve our clients with the best talent that we can field to give the clients the legal solutions and ideas and advocacy they need.
0: So, uh, um, thank you for that. I think we we might summarize as saying, left to our own, left on autopilot, um, natural processes of the brain will lead to biased decisions sometimes. Not consciously bias, but we'll, we'll do that. And as a result, structures reflecting biases will, will perpetuate unless we interrupt the processes that have been on autopilot. And so the Mansfield rule for us is a check we place on each of our hiring and promotions processes or pitch processes, as you described, to make sure that we are not Failing to take opportunities we can to become a more diverse organization. And doing so gives voice to our value of respecting all individuals, of valuing and embracing the the diversity of all the people that um, are part of our our firm and our community and our our client base. But also um, acknowledging that by being more diverse, we are just a better organization and provide better we believe better legal advice. We're more likely to come out with um, better, better, uh, better conclusions because we have considered more diverse perspective in doing so. It's hard to compare it to to what we would be before that, but um, but all the studies tend to be showing these days that organizations that are diverse are accomplishing more in business. For example, more profits and um, We're trying to follow those leads. So um, Allison, I appreciate you being part of this conversation today. I I just, I wanna remind you that we started Tending Bar because we were having conversations with law students at Georgetown, always looking for careers of meaning. And um, I wanted to introduce them to attorneys who have um, interesting stories to tell. And you as a lawyer to lawyer have uh, a lot of interesting stories to tell. And I, I wish we could share more of them, but I wa- <laughs>
1: yeah, many of my stories are confidential. Times, yeah, right. so I owe my clients duties of confidentiality, right? and I cannot reveal their secrets.
0: Uh, you know, just yesterday, you and I were on the phone more than once, right? On on um, conflict analysis, right? Exactly. Right. <laughs> so, um, but I wonder if you have any any sort of last words of advice that you might uh, want law students to to hear and to think about as they consider their own career paths.
1: That's such a big question, and I certainly would not dare to think that I have the right advice for law students, so I'll give you a piece that I have carried with me that have come from others, and I'll just share this, that, you know, you have to continue to be yourself as you move through the legal profession, and that can be difficult, particularly when you're a young lawyer just starting out, because everything is new, and the law is complicated and difficult, But, you know, in the theme of our integrity discussion that we're having today and our ethics discussion, I would say that early on as a lawyer, you need to decide who you are and who you want to be. And even as a young lawyer, you need to hold yourself to those standards and meet those standards. And so many times you're at a great place practicing with great lawyers and it's easy to hold yourself to those standards and, and be who you want to be. But there are also challenges in the law, and there can be differences of opinion about how to approach a matter and what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. And I think that law students need to feel empowered as they become young lawyers, that they know what's the right thing to do, and they can hold themselves to that standard and speak for it and advocate for it with other lawyers that they work with and with their clients, even at an early stage in their career. So I would say be strong and be true to yourself and trust that you know.
0: Great advice. Solid advice, Allison. Thanks for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me, Todd. I really enjoyed it.
0: And thank you again for being part of Tending Bar. Um, As you heard from my friend and colleague, Allison Boss, There are a lot of ways to be lawyers and and to care about bigger things. In Allison's case, her practice is all about ethics and all about uh, more than just doing the minimum, more than just um, complying with the compulsory rules, but on an aspirational law, achieving something more as individual lawyers and as a law firm. Uh, You've also heard Allison talk about Um, our shared interest in educating attorneys and the general public about implicit bias and about ways that that doing so through education and processes internal to our organizations simply make us better. And so uh, thanks again for joining us today and I'll hope to see you next time on Tending Bar.